Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 526, Jesse's Alibi. As you know, in this week's episode, we presented just some of the witnesses that testified at Jesse's trial in regards to his alibi. In total, I think it was 13 or 14 different people testified that they not only saw Jesse at the trailer park when the police were there after Stephanie Dollar's son got slapped, but several also testified that Jesse was going wrestling that night, and then several testified that Jesse, in fact, did go there, and the people that went with him also testified. I did play for you probably the worst part of Jesse's alibi, and that was the cross-examination of Fred Ravel. He was picked apart pretty good by the prosecutor because he had originally gone to the police and told them that he knew Jesse was with him because he knew that on May 5th, he had paid $300 for the ring. And of course, later, they picked up the receipt and figured out that that was actually done the week before. Now, what really didn't come out, I think, effectively during the cross-examination is that what happened was, is Fred Ravel believed Jesse was with him that night. He asked Charles Stone, who was the owner of the ring, if he remembered anything from that night. Charles told him, yeah, that's the night that you paid for the ring, the $300. And Fred went immediately to the police department, told them about the $300, which really ended up blowing up in their faces under cross-examination. But as I stated in the episode, Jesse going to wrestling that night doesn't necessarily provide him with an alibi as they didn't leave till wrestling until after it was dark. Sunset that night wasn't until 7.50. Nautical Twilight ends about an hour after that. So it could have been anywhere between 8 and 9 o'clock when they actually left. And we think the boys disappeared somewhere between the 6 and 7 o'clock hour based on the witness sightings. So it's still feasible that Jesse could have committed the crime and went wrestling. But with that being said, the stronger alibi was the fact that Jesse was at the trailer park when the police responded to the incident with Stephanie Dollar's son. And I'm sure we're going to get into all of that when Mike starts asking us questions, which we'll do right after the break. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Omaha Steaks. We are coming up on my favorite time of year. You know what time that is, Mike? Barbecue season. Father's Day. People buy me things for Father's Day. Well, yeah, but you barbecue for Father's Day. I do. That's my favorite thing to do in the summertime and the springtime is to cook outside. And this year, we've got a freezer stocked with meat from Omaha Steaks. So while you're trying to figure out what to get your dad for Father's Day, and you're realizing just how hard dads are to shop for, you should really consider the Omaha Steaks Father's Day package. Your dad loves to grill but hates the hassle and poor quality of meat that he gets at the grocery store. Omaha Steaks is the way to go when you're kicking off your grilling season. I got my Omaha Steaks package about a week ago and I've already burned through quite a bit. I've cooked up the filet mignons, the two beefy top sirloins, and I've even used the chicken fried steaks for breakfast a couple of times, much to the chagrin of my wife who tries to keep me on a diet. Nothing like chicken fried steak and eggs for breakfast. It really is my favorite. So let's talk about why Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks offers everything your dad could want for his grilling needs. They've got convenience, they deliver hand-trimmed, flash-frozen, and vacuum-sealed meats directly to your door in an Omaha Steaks cooler. Plus, you get variety. Omaha Steaks carries pork, poultry, veal, lamb, bison, seafood, vegetables, and they're all the highest quality cuts with one-of-a-kind flavor. All beef is USDA inspected for quality and aged for 21 days to unlock the full flavor and tenderness of the cuts. And Omaha Steaks even gives you the option to customize the cuts for your dad's grilling needs. And also help him find recipes, wine pairings, etc. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving a limited time offer to our listeners for Father's Day at 78% off, which is really an amazing deal. And all you got to do is go to omahasteaks.com and then you type in truth in the search bar and you can get this Omaha Steaks Father's Day package, which includes two tender filet mignons, two beefy top sirloins, four chicken fried steaks, two boneless pork chops, four all-beef Omaha steak burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, 12 ounces of all-beef meatballs, and a pound of steak fries. And for dessert, you're also going to get four caramel apple tartlets, and they'll send you an Omaha steak seasoning packet, plus get four more grill-ready Omaha steak burgers free with your purchase. Now again, this is a limited time package for only $49.99. When you go to omahasteaks.com and you got to type truth into the search bar and then add the Father's Day package to your cart. That's just $49.99 
which is 78% off. It's a great way to send an awesome Father's Day gift to your dad without any more hassle trying to figure out what to get him. So don't wait. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type truth in the search bar, and grab your dad and fire up the grill. All right. Our first question comes from Megan. She says, I apologize if this was already discussed, but was there any talk of looking into someone related to the Boy Scouts? They would be considered an authority figure to the three boys and possibly be quick on their feet with working with whatever materials they might have. Yeah, so we haven't really started to dig into what will be the new investigation where we're looking at all the alternate suspects that are out there. Anyone who could be considered to be an authority figure to the boys will certainly be on that list. And that would include anyone affiliated with the Cub Scouts. It was actually not Boy Scouts. It was the Cub Scouts they were in. So, no, we haven't discussed it yet, uh, and we haven't really looked too deeply into it yet, but that is definitely something we're going to check out, and that is based on our preliminary profile that the person who murdered the boys was likely someone with a known personal relationship with them, familiar with the area, familiar with the woods, and likely some kind of authority figure. So we will definitely be looking into the Cub Scouts when we begin the new investigation on the show. All right, this next one's from Teresa. Have you reached out for an interview with Jesse Miss Kelly? How about Stephanie Dollar, Susie Brewer, or Dan Stidham? Okay, so Jesse, we met Jesse the yep. first time we went to West Memphis. We were informed while we were trying to track him down, talking to some people who were close to him, that he doesn't do interviews, he doesn't deal with the media. Uh, but so we, I wanted to tell him what we were doing with the case. So we we tracked him down and at his at his trailer, and we met him. Nice guy. We've talked about that before. It was real nice to us, and... I did approach it by saying that, you know, I know you don't do interviews. That's not why I'm here uh, to try to kind of set him at ease in case yeah. he was worried that that's where you're after. Because I know that he doesn't like to do that, uh, which he responded, no, 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 I don't do any of that. And uh, and explained to him what we were doing and, and that we were going to redo the investigation. We were looking to try to prove who actually did it. And he said he appreciated us doing that. I did ask him one more time, if you ever do decide, I gave him our number, if you ever do decide you would like to do an interview, we would be more than happy to talk to you. And he reiterated again that he he doesn't do interviews. The whole interaction was maybe five minutes, uh, if that. You know, from there, uh, when I was getting him the phone number, the card for him, uh, you know, he was asking about Jason and Holly, Jason's wife and Damien, them asking how they're doing and told us a little bit about what's going on with his dad. His dad's having some health issues, and he's kind of taking care of his dad. But I, I already knew he didn't want to do interviews, and he reiterated to us twice that he did not want to do any. Now, Stephanie Dollar, I have spoken with her uh, just over text message uh, during that same time. Uh, didn't really get into asking her if she would do an interview. It may be worth bringing it up now. You know, I, I hadn't been this far into the investigation yet at that point, so didn't really know her significance. Really, to me, though, the more significant part of Jesse's alibi is him including that interaction. We know the interaction with the police happened that night. There's police reports and dispatch logs to prove that that happened. And Stephanie can certainly confirm that. We heard her testimony. She said that Jesse was certainly there. And to me, the more telling part is when Jesse is is kind of, quote, coming clean, supposedly his guilt has gotten to him, and, and he's confessing that he includes that interaction in the confession without seemingly knowing that he was alibying himself. He says this happened at like 5 o'clock, and then they went. Well, we know that it actually happened between 6.31 and 6.59 p.m. is when the police were there. So that was more important. Um, I do have contact information for Stephanie and could maybe reach out to her. I'm not sure if we will or not. I may talk to her a little bit about this, but we'll see with that. Susie Brewer, I have not reached out to at all. And Dan Stidham, who was Jesse's attorney, for those of you that don't remember, I have made contact with him, and he has agreed to do an interview, which actually we were hoping to do this week, uh, to talk about his firsthand experience with Jesse and all the confessions. Like I said, he said that he will definitely do an interview, uh, but he's he's not real quick getting back on emails. So that was, I think, Friday. And you know, I said, I'd love to do something next week with you. Let me know what day works for you. Didn't hear back from him. I just sent him another email yesterday. Haven't heard back. Uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a little more to close the show, but this week we're going to use for their, our episodes actually for the next two weeks, uh, my interview with Lisa O'Brien, who is giving us the non perspective, which is the, the perspective of the West Memphis three being guilty, making the points, maybe things that I've missed or disagree with. So you can hear that perspective. We had a, on Memorial day, 
Lisa and I did. It was over two hours long, our conversation. And I think it was really good and it was informative. And I want to make sure that side gets out there uh, in an interest of being kind of fair and balanced in this to make sure that no one thinks that I'm trying to spin anything one way or the other. Uh, and then hopefully between now and then, after we drop, you know, with that episode, we're dropping and we're cutting in half because it's so long. It's over two hours. And then hopefully during that period of time, we can connect with Dan because I'm, I'm really excited to interview Dan. So that should be coming soon. Karina wants to know, do we know the reason why Jesse refused to testify in Damien and Jason's trial? Wouldn't it have been in his best interest if his story or confession was true? Surely the West Memphis PD would have offered him a deal. Uh, they did offer him deals, uh, and you even saw in Paradise Lost, they videoed, I think it was Fogelman talking to some of the families, to the Byers and the Moors, I think, and uh, the Hobbs. I, I don't remember who all's in the room, but he was telling them we may have to offer him a deal in order to get him to testify because they were worried without his testimony. I don't think we have a strong case against the three. And Jesse went back and forth with that. So... Yes, in a way, if he was truly guilty and his confession was true. So if he was, so if he confessed, you know, in, in, in the Bible confession, then the subsequent confession to the prosecutors, uh, if that was true and he actually did it and he put all that on the record, it would be in his best interest to testify because they were offering him a plea deal, you know, where he wouldn't spend the rest of his life in prison. He could actually, you know, have a release date where he'd go home at some point. And he went back and forth. And I, I think it just goes to show how easily manipulated Jesse was. You know, he would he would talk to the police in the car on the way back to the jail after the trial, after he was convicted. You know, and he talks to them, then he comes out and says, I want to confess. And then so he does that, and then and then he talks to his lawyer then again at the prison and says, Nope, I'm not going to testify. And then he talks to the prosecutors and he says that he will and and gives another statement or confession. And then he talks to his lawyer again and then changes his mind, decides not to testify. I think a lot of it comes back to there, there's a conversation, uh, and it's on Callahan's site, uh, which you know, I want to address. I may, I wanted to point out, you know, normally we put case documents up on our website, and we started to during this season. Uh, but what we realized, it's just we're just grabbing stuff off Callahan and putting it on our site. And Callahan is a great resource, has everything there. So we haven't been doing that. That's I just want to point out that it's not like Katie Ross, who does our website, is is missing any of that. I just haven't been sending the stuff over to her because... You know, if you want to go read one confession from Jesse Miss Kelly, if you go to the Callahan site, you can see there's, you know, all the documents from Miss Kelly. So if you want to read those, they're all there. So if you want to look at these documents, go to Callahan's. One of his statements was on August 19th, which was well before the trial, uh, about two months after he was convicted. And you can see in that conversation, Stidham, I think at that point, believed that Jesse was guilty. You know, he had the confession. He was new on the case. And he's talking to Jesse about making a plea deal to testify against the other two. So this is before the trial. The plan was to get Jesse a deal to testify against Jason and Damien, uh, to cut a sentence down it, instead of life without parole to life. Or he's talking about maybe we can give you like a set number of years, you know, and then you can maybe get paroled after half of that amount of time. Uh, but but there's something pretty telling that I found in there. You know, the, the interview itself, you know, people consider that one of Jesse's confessions. But if you read it, it's it's... I won't say worse, but it's a, it's the same thing. Uh, there's less information provided by Jesse in that than there is in the recorded confessions we listen to when you read the transcripts. Meaning the entire thing is Stidham repeating back to him what he had said in his confession, and Jesse going, "Yes, yes, 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 yes." You know, he's okay. So you went there this time, yes, and then and then the boys came up and you did this, yes, and then you were standing on this bank, yes. The whole thing is like that. But there's one little part of it if you read it where they're talking about the plea deal, and Stidham says, you know, well, they can offer you a deal, and it would be less than, because I think you know, you're likely to get convicted, you go before a jury, uh, and get sent away for life without parole, or even even the death penalty, uh, but we can we can cut that back, and all you have to do is then testify against the other two, and Jesse says there's one line there, and he says, I don't know if I want to be lying to lawyers, uh, which, which caught my attention, I mean, you can make out of that whatever you want. Um, but so at that point he was going to testify, then he decides not to. And then again, he jumps back and forth. Uh, and so why he didn't, I don't know. I think Jesse would tell you and what he said, uh, publicly is that he it wouldn't be right for him to get on the stand and lie on those other guys. People with, uh, that believe the three are guilty, I'm sure would have other, other reasons for that. And as far as would it be advantageous to him? 
So yes, if he's truly guilty and the confession was legit, then it would be in his best interest to make a deal. However, if he's innocent or even if he's not, the other perspective of that is if he went on the record and testified against the other two, it really would take away any chance he has at an appeal. You know, it, it's really hard to come up with an appeal later and try to get a new trial if you're on the record, both with the police and the prosecutor, and then under oath at trial uh, saying that you were involved in the murders. So the, it would it would ruin a chance of appeals, and his lawyers told him that. So that's that plays into it as well. All right, and Bridget says, in terms of both testimonies played in the last episode, the lawyers kept referring to transcripts with the witnesses from talking to the police. And both witnesses were adamant that they didn't say some of the things that were said. Were there audio recordings of the police interviews or only what the police had written down? There were audio recordings, and that's what the transcripts were created from. And, you know, a lot of it was you'd hear them say, well, I didn't say that. And then and then Fogelman would read from the transcript and point out that they did say it. Some of the stuff was significant. Some of it wasn't. Um, you know, there was when Fred, Fred Revelle, for example, was on the stand and, you know, he's making a big deal. And what he's trying to do is attack his credibility in front of the jury. You know, he says, well, you said right here that you knew what time it was because of daylight savings time. Daylight savings time started before that. And you had said it didn't. And they made this big deal about whether he, and he's like, well, I didn't say, I don't remember if I said that. Uh, so it wasn't so much that he was adamant that he didn't say it. But then Fred's trying to say, all I know is it was dark, you know, and so he had said, so it's easy uh, on both sides. We can do it both ways to to pick out little lines and make somebody look like a liar, you know, and say, well, you said here daylight savings time hadn't happened yet, and it did, you're a liar. When in fact, the point he was trying to make was he was estimating what time they left, and he knew that it was getting dark, and he was thinking back to May, which he thought was before daylight savings time, uh, and when would it have been dark? So it wasn't a big of a deal. But um, I, I, I think that pretty much everything that the prosecutors said, and actually, I, th- I think it wasn't, I, I, I said Vogelman in the episode, but I, I believe someone had, I think Shannon, uh, Laracy or somebody had pointed out to me that it, in fact, wasn't Fogelman. It was Brett Davis that was doing the cross examination there, uh, which is my mistake. I mean, a lot of, it depends on how I'm, I'm breaking things down, whether I'm reading transcripts or if I'm listening and taking notes and those, I was listening and taking notes. So I must've missed that. But yeah, I think that everything they said was in the transcripts. It's just a matter of context as to how relevant each one was. Ellen says, are there any witnesses that saw Jesse, Damien, and Jason together on the day of the murder? That's an interesting question because no, nobody has. So so there's people that all these people say they saw Jesse. Uh, you know, we got uh, Ken Watkins who says he saw Damien and Jason together and Dominie who says he saw them together. Uh, and you got, you know, Uncle Hubert, who says he saw Jason mowing the lawn. There's all these people, but to my knowledge, there's not one single witness with them. Now, remember, they're walking. They're walking through trailer parks, down the road, down the service road, into the woods. There's not one single witness who says that they saw the three of them together at any point during that day. So that's a great question. Robin says, any description of the boys that Stevie was making fun of calling names to and the ones that offered the girls shots? I've wondered if they were the same group of boys, and if so, if anyone questioned them. Well, I think she means Michael Moore. Michael Moore was the one that had uh, one of the door-to-door notes said that he'd been seen calling two black boys' names uh, in, in that neighborhood prior to, and uh, it was it was it was two black guys that offered the shots to Dawn Moore when she was going to the woods. So that's the only description we have is just that they were African-American, uh, the number of them. And gosh, that was a long time ago. I'm trying to remember if it even said black boys are just black men uh, that Michael Moore had interacted with. Dawn did say they were teenagers, the ones that she saw up by the oh, woods. I'm talking about in the, the notes. Michael's. Yeah. Do you remember if it said? I can't recall. Okay. Uh, but no, there's no other description than that, is that he was seen calling them names, uh, and then the two that offered Don Moore shot. But yeah, no other description other than their skin color, apparently. All right, Richard says, I think you've missed something on the timeline for Jesse and his confessions. The timeline the police put out has incorrect written in the margin next to the time for Jesse's clarification interview. I don't believe that happened until the next day, after the police knew Jason was indeed in school and there was proof. What are your thoughts on that? I've seen this theory out there. I don't know if that's accurate. Richard is correct that in the time log, 
in the handwritten uh, in the or the typed out time log for when each interview happened with Jesse that day. It does say incorrect uh, handwritten next to the time for the clarification interview. And I think Richards, I saw his theory was like he said there that they went back for the clarification the next day when Gail Grinnell, who is Jason Baldwin's mom, uh, provided police with documentation and proof that Jason was actually in school between 9 and 12 in the morning. Uh, and so they followed up then. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I guess it could be. Uh, but my understanding has always been that the purpose for the clarification interview was for the prosecutor in order to obtain a warrant for not only Jesse, but Jason and Damien, uh, which, and of course they were arrested the night before. So I think that it probably did happen that night. I need to go back through Jesse's interviews with Offshay where he talks about his experience that night, but I, I don't believe they brought him in the next day to do the clarification. Uh, and, and I guess if, if, if I'm wrong about that, it makes a, a difference just in the fact that, you know, there was a different reasoning for them to do it. But, but either way, the time was an issue, you know, because be, whether, whether or not Jason was in school isn't necessarily of any relevance because they knew that the three victims were in school at that time. So they, they didn't need to know that Jason was at school that morning in order to realize they needed to fix the time because they already knew that. My opinion is that the clarification did, in fact, happen that day before the warrants were issued. And there's another issue with that, too, in the fact that in the arrest warrants, the the time on them is it was the exact time of the beginning of the first interview, 244 which people pointed out indicates that Jesse was already under arrest before he gave the interview. But my counter to that is I don't think that's true either. I, I think that they just did a sloppy job of doing their paperwork because in the narrative in the affidavit for arrest warrant, it says that Jesse was had, you know, gave a recorded interview or two recorded interviews uh, as the basis for the arrest. So clearly that document was written after the interviews, not before. Uh, because they didn't know what he was going to give in those interviews beforehand. So, yeah, there, I think there's some errors on the police part. I think they probably have the time incorrect, but I don't think that it was the next day. Cynthia says, can you go over the time of death for the boys again? Last I remember, it was close to 7 p.m. This episode said between 6.30 and 7. Is Brian Woody not credible? Well, we don't know necessarily who's credible. There's some witnesses that I find to be very credible uh, that saw, you know, Dana Moore certainly recognized her child going up the street, which was around six. But, you know, I I don't think we ever actually hear Dana say that. You know, that actually comes from Mark Byers. So, that you know, that affects the credibility of that a little bit. You know, Mark says Dana said that. Um, but, you know, we had a number of sightings between 6 and 6.30 up in the north end of the neighborhood that do sound credible. Uh, Woody's sighting says he saw four boys, uh, but he also says it was quite a distance away, and he didn't identify them other than he remembers seeing one with blonde spiky hair. If his sighting is credible, then, you know, that would certainly lend itself to the idea that there was a fourth boy traveling with the three that afternoon when they went into the woods. But it's just hard to say that 100 percent that was accurate. And even and, the, and there were some issues with with his timing as well uh, when it comes down to uh, when he got off work and how long it took him to get there. So there are some issues with Brian Woody. Then there was also the Chris Wall sighting, uh, which was over on West Macaulay. Uh, at like 6.45, but there was issues with his timing as well. Uh, so I don't know. As far as time of death goes, um, I, I think I did say, and, I, and I, I, I guess I need to stop phrasing it that way, the exact time murders occurred. I hope I said attacks. It is certainly up for debate. Remember that Dr. Peretti at trial, when he was pressed on the timing issue, said that uh, he believed that the range would be from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m., uh, which would push it way back. As I've mentioned, I, I I tend to disagree with that finding. I don't think that the lividity evidence that he used to make that determination, and he did say many times, there's no way to determine it. I can't determine it. When they pushed him, then he gave that estimate. But lividity is, is a wide range anyway, uh, as far as when lividity fixes in a body, when it's still blanchable. And then when you add in submersion in water, you add in temperature, you add in the fact that the boys weren't clothed, you add in the fact that we don't know exactly how they were they were positioned in the water. You know, there's a lot of people, and, and maybe I'm missing something, but there's a lot of people that say that, you know, they know for a fact they were they were pressing the mud or they were a certain way. But really, 
from what I've read, all we know is, you know, because I've heard people say, for example, Michael Moore, uh, you know, he was found when Mike Allen, you know, caught something with his foot, lifted his foot up and up floats Michael Moore. Um, so I've heard people say that they were pressed down into the mud, like suctioned down into the mud, their bodies were. And I just don't, you've seen that mud that's in there, that mm. type of mud. Yeah. And it's the kind of mud that pulls your shoes off, you know, if you right. get stuck in there. And I, I think if their bodies were stuffed down, pushed down into the mud real hard, that it would take more than just lifting your foot to dislodge them. It would, it, it, there'd be an actual suction there. I've been told um, by a couple of people that were that have investigated the case previously that they were they were pinned down with sticks in the same manner the clothing was, like sticks wrapped around the shoestrings and pinned down. But they weren't able to provide me with any accurate evidence of that happening either. Chris and Stevie, you know, were you know Ridge was down on his hands and his knees, came across them and picked them up. Um, I think in Mara Leverett's book, she says, you know, there was the suction of pulling them up, but I haven't seen that in any reports. You know, it, it sounded to me more like they just you know picked them up out of the water. You know, like not that they were suctioned down. Point being, with the lividity, if they were loose enough in the current where their body would, even if it was slowly rocking, that affects lividity. The the time lividity will fix, and you have to be still for a number of hours. I mean, anywhere from you know six to twelve hours, and that's with you know normal, say seventy degree conditions. And and if you're rocking and moving, what it is is the settling of blood. Uh, in the body. And if it's continually moving, it takes it longer to settle. So I, I just don't think that's, you can, you can determine a time of death based on lividity. As, as we said way back, uh, in the episode where we discussed that, I think that, you know, it's not like on TV. They don't, you know, the, the ME doesn't come out and poke a thermometer into the liver and tell you the time of death within 20 minutes. It doesn't work that way. The, the biggest factors you have is when were they last seen and when were they found? And there's your range. With lividity and rigor, you might be able to narrow that down. But when you have all these unknown factors and there's water and it's cold water and, and cold water would slow the process of lividity. Uh, moving bodies, you know, if they're rocking in the water, which we don't know, I don't know. Uh, if they were, it just makes it difficult. So Peretti may be right. Now, my personal opinion, the reason why I, I always I tend to put it between really probably between 630 and 730 is because, you know, that's when they were last seen. I just don't think that, and, there, and and I'm not discounting anybody that disagrees with me because they have valid points and there's a lot of theories out there. I don't see it being plausible that the boys were killed somewhere else, are taken from the woods, and then and then brought to that location for for concealment of the bodies. So in order to do that, we're talking the bodies are they're in a car, they're in a house. I've heard theories that they could have been in a boat and taken down the bayou. Um, all plausible, but. I just look at the, if you already have them in a concealed position and location to take them right in the place where people are looking, you know, you got, you know, Ryan Clark and, and his buddies are actually crossing the pipe going over to the woods. You got uh, Regina Meek that's gone down to the pipe bridge, doesn't cross it late, late at night. You have um, David Jacoby and Pam Hobbs and Jackie Hicks and Terry Hobbs all coming from the Blue Beacon side and searching in those woods. You know, the, the search efforts were all concentrated is you know there should have been more there wasn't a huge search effort but what there was was all concentrated in the robin hood area south of the bayou and in the robin hood or blue beacon woods north of the bayou so to to take them to that location and then and move the bodies there it just seems like such a risk if they're in a car it would behaviorally speaking it would make a lot more sense to you know drive them away from where everybody if everybody's looking here take them somewhere else to conceal the bodies and, and so that's one of the reasons why I think that uh, that they were likely killed right there during that time and disposed of or concealed uh, right around the time they went missing uh, between that that six thirty seven thirty hour. Um, you know, I had mentioned on on the main episode that in a recent interview, Terry Hobbs had said he was in those woods looking. And again, we don't know. You know, nobody's looking at their watches, um, but you know, he had said that he had gone across the pipe bridge and looked in those woods. Uh, and didn't see anything during that time. You know, there's been, there's also, you know, to support the idea the other way, there was uh, a couple of officers that wrote affidavits that said uh, at like six in the morning, I think it was, they were in the woods searching with high powered mag lights right at the creek, shining them into the creek and didn't see anything. They said they're convinced the bodies weren't there then. Then there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of debate as to whether, you know, those flashlights, they certainly would have seen them. I tend to disagree only because I've, uh, 
a weird, very, very hillbilly uh, sport that I used to do when I was very young uh, was we used to go carp shooting. Uh, and that's mm. where you, you're on a boat and use a bow and arrow. And instead of fishing with a fishing string for, for fish, you would shoot them with a bow and arrow and uh, with a barb on it, almost like a harpoon. And we would have lights on the front of the boat to see down. And if you got into muddy water, you couldn't see anything. It just reflected off the top mm-hmm. if there was muddy water. You couldn't, even with the light, it didn't penetrate the muddiness of the water. So I don't know there's a lot of things that go back and forth. So when I say that I think that the the murders occurred somewhere in that 6.30, 7.30 hour, it's based on that. That's not fact. That's, that's my opinion based on what I have um, gathered from analyzing the evidence that we have. And, and, you know, some predictive behavior analysis, which is just, you know, some would say is reading tea leaves. It just seems unlikely to me that they would be brought to the location right there uh, when people are there. Now, it could have been two. you know, the theories usually are that, it, you know, it was two, three o'clock in the morning when there was nobody back there searching. They slid him in there and put him in there. But again, I think that it would make a lot more sense to there's a lot better ways and better places to conceal them. And then also there's, again, the fact that they're naked and their their clothing is also stuffed in the mud. And some of it's floating down the, you know, shoes floating down the the, the bayou. You know, why haul all that stuff in there when you could throw it in a dumpster, burn it, throw it, you know, somewhere else. There's a lot of factors for me, in my opinion, that indicate that shortly after they went in the woods, they were killed. But to be clear, you know, we don't know for a fact that the time of death or that they were killed right at that time. I think that... Most, maybe not all, most people would at least agree that they were abducted during that time. So I think even if you believe in a later time of death, I think at least a large majority of people would agree that they were at least attacked, abducted during that that 6.30 to 7.30 window somewhere in there, or 6 to 7.30 or 8 o'clock, somewhere around there, um, which which with knowing where or, you know, having a, a, a quite a bit of evidence that Damien Eccles was at the Sanders at that time and and more evidence that Jesse McKelly was at the trailer park during that time um, makes it really not re- real plausible, in my opinion, that they were down at the creek abducting the boys, if not killing them at that hour. All right, some good talk here. We're going to take a quick break and we'll get right back to it. All right, this one's from Janice. Are we going to be able to hear all the interviews you've done so far? Yes. At some point, you're going to hear everything when we get to it. Uh, you know, we've done long-form interviews with Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin. We've got more of the John Mark Byers interview uh, and several others we haven't even talked about yet, David Jacoby being one of them. So we are definitely going to play all of them. It's just a matter of when we're going to get them out there, whether we're going to do it before or after we hit our pause here. And while we're on the subject of the pause, Liz wants to know when we're going to follow through with that, and does that mean that we won't have an episode for a few weeks? No, it definitely does not mean that there's going to be any weeks without episodes. So to lay this out for you, we've been kind of bouncing back and forth. There's, there's just there's stuff happening that we've got to make a lot of decisions as far as how we are presenting and when we are presenting and what we have to keep back until things are resolved, uh, some of the th- developments that we were had in the case recently. And so here's the deal. we are definitely going to pause the case. And I know some of you are upset about that, but we are finishing the season. I've seen rumors that people think we're we're you know we're backing off because we're tired of the social media or you know that, that I don't know that we've hit dead ends. It's exactly the exact opposite of that. The social media stuff doesn't bother us. We deal with it all the time. We we just we need to stop talking right now. Otherwise what happens is cuz we could continue to keep talking about this case while this stuff is happening. But honestly, we'd be spinning our wheels. We would just be, we would be talking for the sake of talking, telling you a bunch of stuff that you already know. And so we've made the decision to just hit pause. And aside from that, we, we always have people asking us to help with their cases. Uh, we've got, we've had several. We have, uh, I think we've made it a selection on what's going to be our next case. And so while we see all these things through, uh, and before we start doing the new investigation on the podcast, we're going we're gonna to move on to our Season 6 case, which we'll be giving you a little more detail and announcing as we get a little closer to it. But as far as this season, the Season 5, the West Memphis 3, what's going to happen is probably, it depends on, you know, if we get Dan Stidham to interview. We still got to cover Jason Baldwin, which will only take a couple of episodes. You know, he didn't testify at trial. There was no recorded interviews. So, you know, there's not a, it's not like Jesse where we're going through all the stuff or Damien where there, there's just very little for Jason. So... It'll take maybe a couple weeks to get through him. 
you know, we've got two weeks of the non-perspective. We're hoping to get Dan Stidham in. We may do an interview, and I haven't even talked to them about this, but I'm hoping maybe we can get uh, Damien and Jason on the line together and talk about you know, what's happened with the podcast so far. Uh, so we're probably talking a month or six weeks uh, before we hit pause. And understand that's all that's happening. You know, there's like I said, I, and part of that's our fault. We haven't been real clear because we didn't know exactly what we were going to do. People are upset that we're not finishing the season. I promise you, we are absolutely going to finish the season, and we're going to get into the meaty part that everybody always really likes, which is when we talk about the new investigations. We start we start looking into other suspects, and we interview other people, and it's just for reasons we can't talk about it while it's happening. We can't do parts of this in real time, and that's that's the reason for the pause. So that's all that's happening. I think I put on the fan page. Uh, that if you think about it like you're, you're walking dead mid-season break. That's all that's happening here. We're just taking a break, uh, and, and we're going to have another case in the middle there, and then we're going to come right back to it, and we're going to finish strong with this case. So that is coming, and you, there will be the new investigation will be after the pause, but we still have, pro- I would say, between four and six weeks of episodes left before we do that. And we, we are going to try to kind of pick up the pace a little bit, you know, just because... With the Jesse Miss Kelly stuff, I, I feel like everything was necessary for me as an investigator. You know, you guys are kind of walking through this stuff with me. It was necessary for me to go that deep into every aspect of his, his different confessions and the alibi and all that for me to to be comfortable in saying, you know what, I think that there are better suspects out there than Jesse Miss Kelly. So the break is coming probably four to six weeks away. In the meantime, during the break, we will not be taking a break from the podcast, just from this case. So we still will be covering uh, a new case during that that pause. You know, then that may go for uh, for a few months or six months, whatever it's going to be, and then we'll come right back into the West Memphis Three. Jenny says, at some point, Jesse changed his story to being drunk. Did anyone actually witness him being drunk? Also, supposedly Damien and Jason were allegedly drinking beer in that quote version of his story. If that were true, I would expect someone would have to purchase it for them, like Vicky did for Jesse. Do we have any evidence of someone saying they purchased beer or gave them some or any of the boys stealing beer out of anyone's fridge? Not that I'm aware of, but um, someone someone will, I'm sure, correct me if I'm wrong about that. But I haven't come across anything where anybody saw them drunk or anybody saw them, uh, you know, or, or reported that you know they were the source for Damien's beer. There's theories out there. There was a plastic bag found on the crime scene that uh, I believe came from the gas station where Damien's dad worked. So there's theories that, you know, he got the beer there. I don't know. But no, nobody's, you know, getting back to that earlier question, I don't know if anybody's saying they saw the three together at all, much less all drinking. Sarah says, what are your thoughts as to why none of the law enforcement officers at the slapping call report seeing Jesse at the scene? Do you believe this to be purposeful, police intentionally lying, as to not contradict the confession? I don't know. You know, I, I hate to make accusations like that, especially against law enforcement officers. But boy, I'll tell you, it, it just really for me is very suspicious for that many people. You know, and and the argument would be they're all his friends and they're trying to protect Jesse. But again, man, they're talking about this guy confessed to killing three eight-year-old boys. I don't care. I can t- I can pretty much assure that if that was me, you're not going to go lie for me to protect me. No, you're on your own, man. Yeah, and, and even family members, I just had that many people all, and, and, and describe in vivid detail. You know, listen, go on to Callahan, listen to Lewis Hogarth's testimony or, or James McNeese's testimony where they talk about, you know, when they saw Jesse talking to Dalhite. And, and you listen to Stephanie Dollar's testimony about, you know, she's not overselling anything. She's correcting them when they're wrong. You know, and she says that, you know, I saw the police came, I saw them leaving down by my trailer. She didn't say I saw Jesse talking to them, but then, you know, the other witnesses say I saw Jesse talking to them. And and Lewis Hogarth says, you know, I asked him what was going on. And Jesse told me that he told the police where Stephanie was or that she wasn't home. And then again, for him to while he's confessing against Stidham's advice, he's going to confess again. When he recounts his day, he goes into so much more vivid detail and accurate detail, according to everyone else's story about his interaction with the police that day after uh, uh, Stephanie's daughter got slapped by Connie, excuse me, Stephanie's son got slapped by Connie, and then goes on to say 
that he murdered the boys that, you know, after, you know, and based on that timeline, if he was there, you know, the police leave one minute before 7 p.m. He then says he, he talks to Stephanie and then uh, and then he walks. He meets up with Dennis Carter. They walk to Vicky's house. She says they have a conversation with her. She leaves, goes and gets booze and brings it back to them. And then they go back to his house and then. And then they walk down to uh, uh, Lakeshore, and then they meet Damien and Jason, or he meets Damien and Jason. And then they, I mean, you're talking 8 o'clock by the time they would even make their way towards the crime scene. Now, now the two Marion officers weren't as strong. They both said, I did not see him there, which is entirely possible. They weren't paying attention. They, they both said they recognize him. They know him. He could have been there, and they just didn't see him. Dalahide is the one that I have the real problem with, because Jesse says, that he talked to him in the car. Lewis Hogart said he saw him talking to him in the car. Uh, and there were other witnesses that, that said that, you know, they talked to Jesse about what he talked to Dalhite in the car about. Uh, Dalhite says he, he's very familiar with Jesse, knows what he looks like. And then he swears a statement eight months later and says he wasn't there. He absolutely wasn't there. I mean, so there's a few options here. It could be that Jesse wasn't there. Uh, I, I find that very hard to believe. Could be that. Uh, Heights did see Jesse and just doesn't remember eight hours later. I mean, he wasn't there for Jesse. He was there looking for Stephanie. So that's plausible. Um, I don't think it's really all that plausible, but it's possible for, for sure. Or the third option is that, you know, when the, the prosecution is building its case, that he tells them no and, he, and that he's lying. So those are the three options. He either saw him there and is lying. He saw him there and doesn't remember or Jesse wasn't there. All right, Michelle says, I've always considered the possibility that Jesse has some culpability, but Damien and Jason remain completely innocent. Have you thought or discussed this option? Yeah, I've thought about a lot of different options, or even the other way around. Maybe it was Jason and Damien, but not Jesse, but it, it doesn't fit. There's nothing there against Jason and Damien without Jesse's confession. You know, there, there's a lot of, like, circum, you know, that Damien supposedly said that he was talking to friends and said that he had killed the boys and had more picked out to kill. At a softball game, but even if even if that's true, it still doesn't prove that he did it. You know, it could, you know, at that point he's been being questioned. He's a suspect. You know, people are are starting to think that he did it. You know, if he's a smart ass kid, I mean, maybe I'm not saying that's what happened, but that is, you know, it's not proof that he did it. What they needed was Jesse's confession. Uh, well, it proved they well they kind of did because it did end up getting into the jury, even though it wasn't supposed to. But no, I don't I don't see it being Jason and Damien without Jesse. And then what they ask here is, could it have been Jesse without Jason and Damien? Um, that just, see, again, Jesse's, Jesse's alibi to me is pretty damn strong that he wasn't there. And then, you know, I don't care, again, if he confesses one time or a thousand times, if he can't provide a single accurate detail from himself about what happened on the crime scene or even what the crime scene looked like, I can't give any weight to that confession, you know, and, and to hear some people making arguments, how, how far they have to go to twist, you know, it's the Oscom's razor thing. You know, it's usually it's the simplest thing. It's like, he doesn't have a clue about anything. Well, maybe he was drunk or he was high or he looked away when things happened or he wasn't paying attention or he doesn't remember because it was tremendous. It's like, yeah, there, there could be all of that or it could just be that he wasn't there. Uh, so no, I, I think that if it was just Jesse alone, he would, you know, certainly he would have been making up parts about Jason and Damien being involved, but he would also still know more about the crime scene itself and about the crime itself. And certainly if it was only him, he would know what the hell he tied the boys up with. Amy asks, are there any updates on Ed's release date? Have you spoken to him recently? Uh, as far as the release date is concerned, uh, we, we don't know. I, I did talk to Ed a couple of times since, since we'd spoken about him last on the podcast. He is super duper upbeat. I mean, he's just just a happy, happy guy right now. He has started his class uh, that he needs to finish in order to get released. He's definitely looking forward to going home. But the way the release works is Ed won't know until you know, 24 hours before he goes home when he's going home, which is tough because I really want to be there when he gets out. I have a feeling I'll have to make you know go down there and celebrate with him a few days later because... Uh, number one, it doesn't sound like the Texas prison system allows much fanfare. You know, it's not like on TV, apparently, where you're all standing at the gate and he comes walking out. It sounds like they just let one car come and get him and they leave. But uh, the way Ed described it to me, he said that he'll get called up at like 430 in the morning and they'll say, all right, we're putting you on a bus. You're going home. 
He won't be allowed to make any phone calls. He said he'll have to have his buddy call Kim, his wife, and let her know. They will transport him to a different unit where they'll hold him for a few hours and collect all his stuff, and then they will, you know, they will let him out. Uh, I think we're looking probably end of July, early August, because it took him a little while because of the lockdown to get the class started. Uh, but we have some more awesome news about Ed while we're on the topic. Uh, listener Danielle Rohr was working with Kim to try to get Ed a car when he gets home. You know, Ed Ed said he he really wanted a you know Ed's six foot seven, three hundred pounds. He he wanted a truck. You know, in the GoFundMe, we've started sending the deposits over to Kim for that. So she's got the money sitting there, and she wants to make sure that Ed has a vehicle when he gets home. Well, uh, Danielle was trying to help arrange that. She was hoping to maybe find somebody with a dealer license that could go to an auction and get Ed a deal on a truck. Uh, she put something out on her social media, and a relative of hers says that she knows someone who owns a dealership. And lo and behold, the owners of that dealership uh, which I'll, I'll have to tell you next week's Friday if I have the name of it because I forgot to write it down. But the, the the owners of the dealership told her they listen to the podcast and they've been following the case and they want to help by providing Ed with a free pickup truck. Wow, that is amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and they said they want to give him, they want to donate to him a low mileage, good, reliable pickup for Ed for free. And that's just incredible and and actually, I want to pause this real quick because I want to make sure that I do get their name on here. Okay, the dealership is out of the Dallas area, and it is Medor, M-E-A-D-O-R, Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram. So it's a Medor Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram, and they are, out of the goodness of their hearts, donating for free a vehicle for Ed to drive when he gets home. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible, and I just I'm just overwhelmed daily at the the kindness of the the Truth and Justice Army. Okay, Bob, and before we close, did you want to talk about the interview we did with the girls on the Hustle and Heels podcast? Yes, I do. So uh, you guys all know that out of our studio here, we have another podcast called Hustling and Heels, and it is hosted by Stacey Carlin and Kaylee Gaines. And it's 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 kind of shifting a little bit. It was always kind of a podcast, of, you know, by women for women supposed to be very inclusive, you know, women from all walks of life. You don't have to wear heels. But the things you go through every day and how we hustle and overcome obstacles, uh, and they're doing an amazing job. But they actually this week invited Mike and I into the studio and wanted to hear our story. And if you guys were ever, number one, want to hear Mike and I talk about something that doesn't have to do with murder. Uh, <laughs> and and also, if you're ever curious how Mike and I got to really know each other, become friends, and 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 make the shift from being firefighters to being podcasters. I think it's a really, really entertaining episode. I mean, it's a, it's a good conversation. Yeah, I had a blast, and I, th I think it was some pretty good stuff. So. Yeah, a little bit of a power struggle between me and Stacy, who she hosts that one, and I host this one and in the same studio, and, and yeah. Stacy and I went to school together, so it was, it's pretty funny. But check out the Hustling and Heels. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's episode, I don't remember the number, but it's, it's the most recent one, and it's titled Changing Lanes. I believe that'll be episode 17. Episode 17 of the Hustling and Heels podcast, Changing Lanes. Please go check it out and, and see what you think, and, and let us know what you think about Mike and I's story while we drank wine and Bud Light. Yeah, it was a really good time. You should check it out. Yep, and then uh, this Sunday, uh, we will have episode 527 which, as I mentioned, is going to feature the first part of my interview with Lisa O'Brien, who is going to start presenting to us the non-perspective. And that would be, again, the perspective of people that believe that the West Memphis Three are guilty. So check that out on Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Me for a rebuttal. <laughs> I'm just, I was more looking at you for uh, uh, reaction. You know how that land. Uh, you know I love the word chagrin. <laughs> right. And anytime we can use the word chagrin. That's right, Bob. Yeah. Nothing like chicken fried eggs and steak for breakfast. Not chicken fried eggs. It's chicken fried steak and eggs. Nothing like chicken fried steak and eggs for breakfast. <sighs> Sweaty. Our hair is just not working. It's fixing it this weekend. Yeah. Hot in here. The air conditioner needs a little freon in it. No, no Freon. It does need Freon. I don't know why I did that to you. That was unfair. It was mean. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, ice and me on truth and justice. <laughs> Just spit my cold coffee out. <laughs> <coughs>